out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of Jesus Jones, because I very recently caught up with Jerry DeBorg to find out more about life, love, poetry, all the other groovy stuff that happens when you're in a band from the very early days right through to the current moment. Anyway, this is the interview. So after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that very interesting subject that was the early formative years. Well, you've got to start somewhere. Anyway, Jerry, it's over to you. It would have been um, Beatles. Um, I'm too... I'm not old enough to remember the 60s properly. Uh, I don't remember it, but I, I know the first album I bought was uh, Abbey Road, when I, it would have been on my 10th or 9th birthday. But I had a mate who was four or five years older than me, and we used to play Sabutio together and football, kick a ball around and all that. But he was just into Moody Blues, Eric Clapton, Led Zeppelin, Beatles, and it was the Beatles that did it. And um, things like Rubber Soul, White Album, Abbey Road. Yes. Um, I suppose Abbey Road would have been the defining moment, something like um, Oh Darling, or listening to Helter Skelter. Well, right. One of those tracks. Yes, Helter Skelter. And uh, out, out came my dad's tennis racket, front of the mirror. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of lucky because my dad and his dad well, my my dad was pitch perfect. He could sit down on the piano. You could say, "Dad, play Let It Be," and he uh, or Maggie May or something, and he would. He could just immediately work it out. So he got me at school to do guitar lessons, which I absolutely hated. Um, and it was only when I was twelve, thirteen, fourteen, probably thirteen, fourteen, that I appreciated him getting me those lessons because when Everyone became music mad. I could play. Yes, <laughs> I but I absolutely hated learning guitar. And my sister would have to carry my guitar to school because I wouldn't carry it. I refused to carry it on the bus or down the, down the road. But it's just that thing, hang on, I can do this already. <laughs> so, um, so then, yeah, it was just... That was lucky because actually we... Yeah, music wasn't... I mean, we were obsessed with listening, but no one played guitar, I don't think. We were sort of from a sort of, I suppose, quite a working-class country background where those things didn't seem to sort of be on the radar. radar. But playing football day and night, that was absolutely the thing we did. So, um, unfortunately, that, that was... That was, my, that was my rock and roll was football when I was that age. I was just football crazy. Yes. It? The 1974 World Cup still fills me with excitement watching mm. that. Mm. <laughs> Watching Neil Hancock. Yeah, that's great. It was 1971. Yeah. So when, so when did, um, as the 70s trucked on, you know, punk happened? To be honest, punk missed me completely. It was kind of, you know, the early 80s when I started discovering John Peel and, and all that kind of malarkey. Mm. What was your sort of period? Did, did punk sort of tickle you, <laughs> tickle you at all? Oh, big time, big time. I was uh, an art student, so at 16, I left in the fifth year, I left school and went straight to Harrow Art College. And, you know, the gigs would, they had a venue at the college, so most the motors would play, the fruit-eating bears, uh, all kinds of punk bands would play at our college. But, yeah, punk really, really got me. Um, that would have helped. 
spur me on as a musician, I think. Um, yeah, loved punk, loved the Stranglers, Pistols. Um, been watching a lot of the Pistols lately on YouTube. Really, really enjoying. I'm yes. just I'm just reading Steve Jones's um, book Lonely Boy, which is about to be made into a film by Danny Boyle. Blimey, Danny Boyle's very busy because I think yeah, it's just... he's, the, the the book is incredible. Lonely Boy, Steve Jones, um, and you know, I I never really knew this that Steve Jones and uh, um, Paul Cook actually started the Pistols, and then Steve Jones was living with Malcolm McLaren and working in the shop sex, which he had down the King's Road. And McLaren kind of got into all this and started putting, that's, that's where they got Johnny Johnny Rotten from and all this. Uh, Matlock used to work in the shop as well, but Steve Jones is actually probably responsible for punk rock on his own. So, yeah, there's going to be a great film. Yes, because I think I think Danny Boyle isn't he doing one on Alan McGee as well? Actually, I think that's coming out. Has he done one on Alan McGee? Yeah, because yeah, Alan Alan's got a film coming out, which is kind of a. I think he's got two. To be honest, I think there's. Yes, because I think there's there's been somebody who's been following following uh, following him and filming him, and is going to make a film, which I think has just been picked up. And there's a dramatized story of his life that you'll be able to see. Uh, biopic. Yeah. Yes, I think yeah. that, that's... Oh, that that'll be interesting because he's he's still quite. He's just taken on the cast. He's taken on the Happy Mondays. Black Grape. Happy Mondays. Black Grape. Yeah, I but, guess they're the same. Because we've been gigging, we've been doing festivals, and uh, and he's obviously he's obviously got a bit of sway because the cast have been going on headlining when we'd been like a couple of bands down or something and it's there's always this competitism uh, competitivism between bands and it's like what are cast doing playing after us you know <laughs> but I think McGee, Alan McGee has got a lot of sway uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's Black Grape he's taken on David. I know he's got Happy Mondays I'm sure oh he has has he okay 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 I didn't know that but I know I know he was looking after them because uh we were doing the Minehead Festival, which is a great festival to do. And um, I know the cast were headlining the Sober Black Grape, but, but I think that's due to him. Yes. Yeah. So anyway, that's uh, yeah, it was the, to do with yeah. Film, the film. Yes. So that's... Um, well, it was interesting because I know there's been quite a few books that come out on Malcolm McLaren recently. And it was kind of interesting how he went to New York, worked with various people, kind of saw that opportunity. He had the bit of the work with the New York Dolls, who were all junkies. Yeah, he did. Which he re And in the book it says that he made a right uh, hash-up of that and came back to London, but with the taste. So, um, you know, and obviously New York Dolls were a bit sort of, you know, left and centre. So he, he had the taste for, for doing this, and that's when he started putting um, putting the pistols together. Yes. Um, Steve, Steve Jones was in a band called Swankers <laughs> with Paul Cook, and they were pretty crap. But, um, you know, a bit of honing in and all this, and, um, and well, that's yeah. kind of how it happened. He failed miserably managing the New York Dolls. Yes. There was one point, actually, that I think, is it Dave Sylvian, the singer? It was that the singer from the New York Dolls. He was actually actually going to fly him over and try him out as the singer in the Pistols. Oh, my God. Yes, I could. Yeah. And also Midjure. <laughs> I could imagine. They actually, went, they actually went up to see Midjure in Scotland, but he was under contract to another record company. 
um, probably from Slick, the band he was in. But um, that's kind of where Matlock got outed. Poor Malcolm. He came straight back with the uh, mid-year. Yeah, because um, yeah, there's an amazing story, isn't it, with Steve Jones when he does his radio interview stuff in, in L.A. at the moment. Yeah. And he had Woody Woodmansey from the... Um, David Bowie's Spiders from Mars, and he yeah, can, yeah, he, yeah, yeah. he confesses that he'd stolen some of his equipment and felt so guilty all these yeah, decades later. Yeah, yeah, this is really funny. He gives him 200 quid and says, I'm really sorry, but I've really got to give you this money because it still, you know, hurts. Did he, did he, did he try to reimburse? Yeah, I think he really <laughs> did. So and and I, I think he wasn't just doing it for showbiz. I think he really needed to give him the cash to say, I did steal your gear and actually I've, I, this will make me yeah. feel better, so please just take the money because... That's can... really interesting because he went to see the gig. I think he went on two nights and he went to see the gig and being the the compulsive kleptomaniac that he was, um, I mean, uh, so he, he, he just he just hung about afterwards and then the secu- the security guy who was uh, who was on who, that was working that night had fallen asleep on somewhere. And he went on and he thought, Right, I'm having that amp, I'm having that those microphones, I'm having those symbols for cookie. And he had a van, and yeah, he nicked him. He said he was very proud to hear on the news later the next day. Yes. That place had been robbed. But he'd robbed so many people. It's unbelievable. I mean, the pistols played with the Doctors of Madness. He nicked all their wallets. Uh, one of the guitars he had, he nicked off. Uh, Mott the Hoople's guitarist, Ariel Bender. Um, I think that was the guitarist, Ariel Bender. Um Aware of that one, David, Ariel Bender? No, I, all I remember no, is... No, he was given his name because he used to walk past cars and bend the aerial. Oh, right, I've got you. Because I know that, that, dear old, decades, well, no, not decades, the, the, the next decade, Dale Griffin suddenly appears on all yeah, those Dale John Peel yeah. sessions. Session, we, did, we did a session with uh, Dale Griffin. It was a great moment. I'm a massive uh, Motley Hoople fan, so he's a bass player in Jesus Jones Allen. Um, and we turned up at... Made a veil to do session for any nightingale or something. I don't know. And Dale Griffin was. Uh... Is it Dale Griffin the name? Yeah, he's the drummer. Yeah, he was nicknamed Buffin, I think. But yeah, it was wow. It was amazing. He was uh, engineering and producing. So, yes. Yeah. Well, I know so, most people, when I, because I'm always kind of curious with the John Peel sessions, I, obviously yours wasn't a Peel, but it was Dale Griffin. Because most people. Oh, uh, John Peel hated Jesus Jones, just, just, just for the record. He Did really he? hated us. He thought we were put together by EMI and a, a manufactured band, which you couldn't have been more wrong. But oh, no. He refused to play Jesus Jones. <laughs> 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 so we sampled him and put him on a record. Nice. <laughs> I know. That's, yeah. I know there's a few people who, I, when I've mentioned John Peel, they've. You know, from I don't know, from Momus, I don't know if you know Momus, but um, to um, Felt, Lawrence and Felt, and even Toya, they all really hate John Peel. Oh, yeah. You know, they, they, cause, oh, really? yeah, because he kind of basically snubbed them, and I suppose they just felt really sort of put out. I think he might have even said something which he probably, you know, probably wouldn't have really meant, but they, that probably kind of hurt them a lot. So I think because yeah, I think... I, I never... Have, sorry, sorry, David, I didn't mean to interrupt. Don't no, I was going to say, I think Lawrence from Felt was so irritated that he asked for, for John Peel to send the record back that he'd sent him. <laughs> oh, really, 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 really. And yeah, I think because John, he, seems, he, he seemed like quite a decent bloke, John, John Peel, but I think he was sticking to his sort of purest guns that he was only going to play 
I don't think the word indie was uh, invented then or was being used. But um, yeah, I think the thing is with Jesus Jones, when you see five good-looking young lads that are clever, I think he thought it was too good to be true. I'm really just putting that together now. Actually, I've never sort of. (laughs) That's not a theory I've. uh, I've, um, Yeah, I wondered. You know, I I know that he only had three or four nights, and you could only play so much. And a lot of the time, I suppose that's where I discovered the world of you know the Bundu Boys and early rap Mm. music and sort of Bulgarian folk music and you know death metal and all that stuff. So he did play a lot of stuff, and I suppose he didn't have that much time to put all that in one show. But at the same Mm. time, there was something that he was looking or listening for that fitted that kind of um, the brand, I suppose, that was John Peel, which Mm. was, um, I don't know, he liked bands that he probably thought weren't going to last long and it was going to be... That was it. I don't know. It's a tricky one. So well, look, as we crept into the eighties, what was it? You were you were definitely okay. You had been at art school. So when did your musical yeah. moment start to sort of flourish? Um, okay, so when I quit art college, uh, I did three years at art college. I was in the same class as Simon Le Bon. <laughs> My God. Actually, actually, and we've bumped into each other a few times over the years. Okay, so uh, when. Um, I actually got kicked out of art college. Uh, I was supposed to do five years. I did three, uh, and they booted me out. I just wouldn't do the lessons I didn't want to do. I was I was 16 when I started. I was the youngest. But then I got a job in a, a, I started working for a recording, a record company who had a recording studio. Um, cop this. Their biggest hit ever was the Birdie song. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but they made a million off that. All sorts of bands were coming. Tom Robinson, um Lee Scratch Perry, all sort of reggae bands, all sorts of uh, groups. And uh, so basically I was in a 24-track recording studio at the age of 20, day in, all night sometimes. Uh, you, you know, uh, I learned how to mic up drum kits, solder earphones together, uh, get really good bass drum sounds, snare sounds, um, splice quarter-inch tapes together. You know, you know, I cut my teeth in the music business sort of from 20 onwards working, which was a great thing because, I, you know, I, I remember applying for the job thinking, oh, God, I'll never get this, but I might as well. And he was like, wow, you know, um, got back in touch with me and I managed to get it. Um, so, yeah, that was just doing that. It's very similar to when you leave school. Obviously, I was really good at art, and to find yourself doing art day in, day out, as opposed to two double periods a week at school, which I I, I just absolutely loved. And then to find yourself doing it day in, Monday to Friday, and then as soon as you get home, you've got to do homework. It was the same with with the music business. Um, I was I, I I ended up being a terrible engineer. <laughs> which was kind of what I set out to be, but I'm not very technically minded at all. Um, and it's almost like a dyslexia. I hate, I hate technology. I, the, the, a guy, the guy that I, my songwriting partner was the engineer from that time. So I've got someone that does all my record or my engineering for me because I'm terrible at it. So then I ended up going upstairs and being in charge of the A&R department and I was 23 by the time I did this, and I was also designing all the record company, all the record covers, because of the art college thing. So 
yeah, that is that was where it all happened for me. And then you know, I was always trying to put a band together, and no one was interested in us. So I answered an ad in Melody Maker, and it was Jesus Jones, but who were called Camouflage at the time. But um, so I thought I'm fed up trying to put a band together. People just pretended to be guitarists or singers or a drummer, and it was really doing my head in because I was serious. So I answered an ad. And it was uh, it was the guys that we were living in the same street. That's the reason why I answered the ad because the first three numbers on the um, telephone number was the same as mine. Blimey. All around the corner, saw Mike, Mike and Jen. That was in uh, eighty five, eighty six, and everything started falling into place. Within two years, I think we were playing at a town and country club. Got that uh, from that moment? Yes, because a lot yeah, of yeah, we got signed up to EMI and everything, you know. Because Andy Ross, oh my God, Andy Ross! God, oh God, I did an interview with him recently because he was in a funny band in the early eighties, didn't he? Something like disc, not disc. Who? Andy Ross. I did an interview. Oh, Andy's great. I love him. Yeah, he was in a one of those indie bands from the very early eighties that's just been reissued on Optic Nerve Records. So, um, yeah. Who was quite... Andy? Who was Andy? I can't remember that. You know, Christ, I know the guy really well. Don't well, remember. It... Yeah, you'll have to listen to the interview. He he explains everything that happens later. <laughs> well, he was in he was in this kind of funny little indie band, and um, and it's something something. Oh God, I can't remember what they're called. But it has a, I'm sure it has the word disco in it. I'm really terrible. I think with age, my memory's going slightly. But anyway, he then... was a frustrated guitarist. He got up on stage with us a couple of times um, for sort of jokey gigs uh, around Camden. Yeah. Yes, because the early eighties, because a lot of the bands that I've sort of interviewed in that period, the you know they, they there was a lot of high unemployment because you know various reasons anyway, and um, you know so a lot of people were sort of unemployed. They were on job seekers allowance, enterprise allowance schemes, and all that kind of malarkey. And then you know obviously things kind of then developed, and they sort of that gave them a year to. I mean, it was almost like a grant from the government so that you could sort of bum around, have a nice time and then, you know, get a single out. And and the kind of the cliche is, you know, John Peel would sort of give it a play, think, oh, that sounds quite rustic or sort of quite raw. Given the session, that would kind of make everyone think, oh, this is brilliant. You know, next stop, you know, you get the um, at the the sort of the album would come out that first tour because there was those gatekeepers. And obviously there's John Peel, but there's the enemy the melody makers and sounds as well as and there was record mirror yeah, and also yeah, every, every town and every city would have an indie night wouldn't they so you kind of would yeah. start to get that kind of gigs going around the country so you weren't just playing in front of your friends and family and anybody else you can emotionally blackmail to sort of come to see you you would be like oh god yeah, you yeah, know yeah, we've yeah. we played in front of complete strangers in norwich how exciting yeah, 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 yeah. so it was kind of interesting yeah, yeah. how that kind of organically sort of all happened and and you know that's why that kind of cliche because i think then the second album comes and it's like things are getting everyone's tired aren't they you've been doing it 24 7 you've been living with each other and then you just think, oh, God, we've got to make the second album. Tricky business. But obviously... We, we never had a problem with second, third, fourth albums or stuff like that. Um, they always flew out. That's good. That's... And were recorded very quickly. We didn't muck about. Yes. So when you were... You know, we... Go on, sorry, Dave. No, I was just going to say, so when you kind of got together with the rest of the band... Did you feel like they, you were just the last kind of the bit in the jigsaw that sort of... No, made... it, it wasn't like that at all. It wasn't like that at all. It was uh, Mike, Alan, 
and Jen. Mike and Jen were living in the same flat in uh, Wilsdon. I was living at the end of the road. Um, Alan was oh, in Walthamstow or something and was quite busy, about to quit. Um, so Ian didn't come along for a couple of years after that. But um, it was only because me and Alan's my best friend, bass player, to this day. You know, he's about to be my best man. I was his best man. Um, and he was going to quit. <laughs> it was only when I joined that sort of, we became best mates like that, that Al decided to stay. Um, and, you know, we jailed the four of us. Mike and Mike and uh, Jen were kind of, were living together. You know, they were best buddies and still are really, that, that still goes. And like I say, me and Al still. So, uh, no, I think I um, livened things up. They, they'd all moved down from Bath. I was uh, born and bred in London. I was born in Kentish Town. So I grew up around Kentish Town and Camden. Uh, went to school around there. Um, no, I think, you know, as soon, soon as I joined, uh, I think I started booking up, because I was working for the record company still, so I got a studio time. We could get into a 24-track for nothing. Because we we could bunk in, <laughs> um, and uh, we started recording things. You know, we recorded in for Frico and um, yeah, the, 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 doing a, a sort of a, a bunk in session at the place I was working. Um, well, it's but funny no, because because the guy from as soon as as soon as my boss would go out at lunch times, I'd be on the phone booking gigs in Covent Garden, Dingwalls, anywhere we could get. And I remember I could only get gigs during the week. And the first gig I got, because I just wanted a Friday or a Saturday, and the first one I managed to book that was any good was with the Happy Mondays. I'd, I'd never even heard of them. I remember phoning Mike up and saying, Mike, well, I've got us a gig on Friday night at Dingles. And he was like, great, great, great. I said, we're playing with Happy Mondays. He was going, what? <laughs> and I'm going, who are they? He's going, Jerry, no, they, they're really, they're, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, so no, I I I was I was a good sort of uh, I really moved things along. Um, yes, well, I remember the guy from Collapse Lung that I interviewed. He, oh yeah, oh, they're great friends. Because he was, he said that um, they used to have to just because of studio time they would just have to sort of get in when everyone left and just work through the night when when there was yeah, nobody yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was kind of one of the ways that yeah, they did it. Yeah, there was a lot of that bunking into the studio because my boss was I was earning such crap money, and he would he was I said Henry, can I, you know, come into the studio tonight? Well, you me thirty pounds for that. And thirty pounds was a lot of money in those days. So we just used to. I had the keys for the building anyway. We used to bunk in, <laughs> <laughs> and then I'd have to work next day. I'd have to. I'd just stay there and I'd be up all night playing music, um, and then just carry on. But I mean, you know, in your in your twenties, you can actually function and do things like I can do it now. But well, it's interesting because there's been a few people I've done interviews like who went into into the producing and engineering world and it was kind of a real apprenticeship, you know, just being there working 
day and night and just hoping to get, get the gig. There was a guy called Mark Saunders, I remember, and he just was like working away. And then one day it was like he got the gig to record or help record that Mick Jagger and David Bowie single, Dancing in the Street, mm-hmm. you know. And it was kind of, Clive Langer was there, and he said, oh, look, could you look after this? You know, and he was going, oh, my wow. God, I could completely cock this up. But then, you know, he survived that moment, and it's like, he started becoming yeah, a bit... Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, it's... it's I, I can totally understand that. I, I really can, you know. It's, uh, like I say, I was terrible at engineering, but, um, yeah, I've seen that. I've seen that happen, you know, being thrown in the deep end and uh, coming out, coming out, you know, good. Yes. So, yeah, that's a, that's a really good thing. You've got to take your chance in the music business. There's so many one, wonderful bands out there that just never get anywhere. And, um, you know... Well, it was interesting because you, well, yeah. you mentioned Doctors of Madness. I'd done an interview with yeah, Rich, with Richard Strange, and he said we were two years yeah. too early for punk. We missed the punk thing. But yeah, everybody... they were, weren't they? They were slightly more, um, yes. I don't know, sophisticated. Uh, do you remember Stoner, the bass player? <laughs> no, I don't remember him. The guy that used to—he was called Stoner. He used to dress up like uh, he's making his face up like a skeleton. Well, no. Yeah, they were, they were a great band. But he said band. everybody who went to see them live went on to be in bands and, you know, were, you know, the Sex Pistols or, the, you know, yeah. all those bands because they were kind of like the template, really. But he was like, by the in, age of 20. In a way, they were. Yes. <laughs> and they, they were 25 and probably over there. And they were, and I think also your enthusiasm sort of has waned a bit. You need to have that kind of honeymoon period to sort of survive the music world in a way because you kind of need that confidence and sort of enthusiasm and slight arrogance but as you get older you all all that kind of gets chipped away (laughs) it does it does it does it's strange if i see um uh something on youtube of us when we were younger you know god the energy on stage and the funny thing is you actually think now when we're playing you actually think you're being quite energetic you're not, you know, we're in our 50s, 60s now. Um, you actually think you're still doing it like you were, but the difference is, is you know, early footage of us is ferocious. <laughs> yes. I mean, we still, we, still, we still get around the stage, you know, we're still quite lively, but it's just, there's no comparison. Yeah, so it's interesting, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's strange. Ages, 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 uh, very, it plays a big part in the, uh, rock music, pop music, dance music, whatever. Yes, because I've got, you know, the world of indie pop down between the years of 83 to 87, when there was a real vibe, you know, that was also the years Mm. of the Smiths as well. So it's not a great theory, but it's kind of the best I can do. Because you had the punk, you had that post-punk, then you had a bit of a grey area, and then, you know, just to make it straightforward, you know, the Smiths appeared and they really felt like there was a thing happening, and then you had all those bands like the Wolfhounds and Yeah, Yeah, No, and... The June Brides, all that. And then sort of 87, the Smiths break up. And then Ecstasy comes along. And then there's all that kind of dance world. Everyone wants to do it. And the Happy Mondays managed to slightly cross over. Well, they really did cross over. And the Stone, not the Stone Roses, um, the Soup Dragons also managed to do that big hit. You come along kind of when that scene had changed quite a bit, really, hadn't you? The sort of... Mm. Because yeah, um... indie, indie pop was definitely like, gone wasn't it you know that world and bands like the Sundays came along who were lovely and I mean they did well but I almost felt like oh that's you're a bit too late the party's do you know, kind what, of... do you know what it was Dave it was it, I, I'm, I'm trying to think back the sort of defining moment I mean Mike is our oh, Mike is a, a, a brilliant songwriter and he's so 
driven. But um, I seem to remember when we got our first sampler, Mike's just Mike Mike's eyes would just lit up, and you know he was sampler. He'd just plug it into the back of the television and go out and come home from work and see what he'd sampled. You know, I mean, it'd be something from Tom and Jerry, like uh, one of them getting hit over the head with a hammer, you know, and immediately a bump appears and you just get, wow, <laughs> sample that. And that goes into the song and it's so effective. So Mark, Mike was just all over the sampler. Um, uh, and I remember uh, the first advance he got through his publishing, he went straight up, bought himself a 12 track, uh, which was a state of the arts thing at the time. And just got straight into recording as opposed to so you could do it at home. But I think it was the sampler, and we just had sampler after sampler, and then eventually you didn't need them, you can just do it on the laptop or whatever. Um, but um, yeah, I'd say our defining moment was it would have been around 86, that first sampler. Yeah. And, um, and the Lindrum I had, <laughs> I bought it off. Um, one of the guys from uh, Renegade Soundwave. Oh, yes, probably a robbery. robbery. Uh, I think, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he gave it to me because I did something for him. I can't remember what it was, some artwork or something, and he gave me a case of it. I ain't got any money after. So we had a Lindrum, and then we started using the bass drum from that. So Jen would, our drummer would, um, you know, miss out. We'd have that sampled or something. God, I can't remember so long ago. But um, it was definitely the samplers coming in, you know, the archives. Um, it just gave you so much freedom to steal, turn that, what, what you'd stole. You know, you could take a, a Jimi Hendrix uh, solo and just make it into something that sounds nothing like it. And, um, and you, you know, bung that into your, into your song. And uh, uh, I, I, I get full credit to Mike. Just so clever at sampling. You know, there's a song we've got called Damn Good at This where he just he does the most amazing sampling in it. And he's basically going, singing about being damn good at, it, at what at sampling. <laughs> uh, that, that would have been around 89, that song. Yes, because then no you mind. had, I suppose, yeah, thinking of it, there was a bit of the shoegazing world that was like um, mm. My Bloody Valentine and Silverfish and the Faith Healers and that kind of North yeah, London yeah. Camden scene. So yeah. did you yeah, yeah. did you sort of feel, and then you had obviously Bleach by Nirvana sort of hit from sub-pop world. Did you, did you sort of feel a kind of an energy and excitement at that stage with the band? Because obviously you work with a huge producer on that first album, don't you? Craig Leon, yeah, who'd worked yeah. with... With you know the Ramones, Suicide, Talking Heads, and Blondie. I mean, did Blondie, that? Yeah. How did you manage to sort of get such a? Was it because of the record label just had the connections? Yeah, it would have been. So we, you know, we signed to Food and going through EMI. Um, so we had all the sort of cash of EMI and um, Dave Balfe and Andy Ross looking after us, as opposed to us being one of many bands on EMI. So we had. Uh, some TLC from Andy and Dave. Yeah, um, I don't know what uh, how we came about using. Um, oh, what was his name? Sorry, Craig Leon. Craig, Craig Leon. I don't know how we came, how that came about, but I'm guessing they'd have just thrown thrown us out and said, 
think who was interested. But yeah, he was good. He got a really raw sound on Liquidizer. Um, but it never happened again on any, any of the other albums. Um, yeah, he, we, we were raw as hell then anyway. So, I mean, he was only picking up on what was coming out of us. Yes. Um, I don't think he had a very difficult job to do. I mean, Mike's voice was like a bloody, you know, a machine. <laughs> uh, you know, um, so what's the word I want? Something that cuts hedges. He had this raw voice that he could do, you know. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm guessing Craig Leon had a lot to work with. Quite yes. And then you and but you went from probably art centres to kind of doing like Glastonbury Festival, which was quite a a kind of a moment that must have kind of blown your mind, sort of being suddenly on yeah, stage. Yeah, that was a weird one, wasn't it? We were second on the bill on the Pyramid stage to Happy Mondays, and the gig we played with them before was in Dingwall. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that that was pretty pretty weird. That. Um, I don't know. I mean, it was a Damsky was uh, was before us. It was a kind of an indie setup, even though, you know, I mean, our music is indie dance music, but we were signed to Food EMI. I don't know who the hell uh, the Mondays were signed to. They were um, Factory, yeah, I guess. Was, that would have been was, Factory. Oh yeah, Factory, of course, yeah. Um, but you know, we've been doing uh, festivals all over Europe. We've done Reading a couple of times by then sort of gone from bottom bottom on the um on the list to sort of third. Um yeah, we just took it in our stride, you know, it wasn't it wasn't any big deal. Nothing was. You know, playing Wembley Stadium, it's like, okay, we're doing Wembley Stadium somewhere along this tour, but you know, also along that tour would be playing to a hundred thousand people in Holland or seventy thousand people in Sweden or something like that. So it was all it was all just pretty straightforward it's actually when you stop doing it then you that you realize what you've done <laughs> <laughs> yes that's quite interesting because around actually it's funny a few weeks ago i did an interview with a guy who was the probably the bassist for voice of the beehive and i think they just mm. sort of suddenly went from like just like what's his name what was his name oh martin brett my mate um martin because martin martin. he no is it Mar martin yes martin yeah, I love that guy. Uh, I'm still friends with him on Facebook. I haven't seen him for yeah. 30-odd years, but we were on the same label. They were on food as well. So yeah, because he's got... hang so, out all the time. He's great. Because he's got a story, which is, you know, just briefly, but he was in a bar. He meets Andy Ross, who looks really fed up, and he's looking for a member to join that band because I think the whether he's the bass player, had left. So it was a bit he like... Is, he is. So he said, oh, I can do it. And that was his connection with Andy, who was oh, really? who went from being really depressed, saying, oh, God, I can't... You know, Voice of the Beehive aren't going to do anything. And then suddenly it's like, OK, we're on it. And then he... And it was amazing, the interview, because he had said, you know, we just toured all the time. He got to the point where he was actually... He realised things weren't going well when he was having a conversation to himself in the mirror and went, oh, my God, actually, there's, that's me. I didn't realise that. he, You know, that was when you realised you'd been on the road for too long and had, uh, had lost the plot. Oh, that can mess you up totally. It really can. I, yeah, I can remember I had a flat in Hangar Lane, a place in London with uh, the bass player. And uh, after a world tour playing something like 134 gigs in a year, you know, every time I wake up in my bed, I keep trying to get down to the foyer of, of, of this 
imaginary hotel. And I'd have to lie there and say, you got in at Heathrow three bloody days ago or four days ago. You got in at Heathrow. You're in your own bed. Yeah, really seriously. There was, I can honestly remember a time I thought I was going to go mad. Um, you know, I was going to say to my manager, I need to, I need a psychiatrist. Uh, I'm serious. It's um, just just going from country to country. You know, when you're playing something like 30 different countries in a year, it messes your head up. <laughs> yes, I would imagine. I would imagine. But your follow-up album is the one that really hits big time, isn't it? Doubt. Yeah, Doubt. That must have just been an amazing experience. Yeah. Again, it, it, again, there was no sort of moment when you think, oh, God, it's gone platinum. It just because it goes silver, it goes gold, and it goes platinum everywhere. Um, yeah, um, I don't know. I think when we won an MTV award and we got nominated for a couple of Grammys, um, again, it was no big deal because so much was happening. You don't get a chance to actually think, oh, you know, if that came out of the blue. But because it's not, there's just so many things happening that week and the week before and the month before that, you know. If you, if you get a couple of weeks off at home, you just go out with your mates and get drunk every night. But that was such a rare thing. Um, we were just constantly working. So, again, there was no real epiphany moment for me. I don't know if, you know, I don't know, maybe for Mike, I don't know. Yeah, I was, like I say, I was living with Alan. We just took it day by day and uh, enjoyed it. Or it wasn't really any any massive moments. I don't know. Walking on stage at uh, Wembley Stadium, uh, supporting in excess to a sellout Wembley Stadium, that's pretty daunting, you know. I, was, I looked up and it was like, wow, God. <laughs> when you when you sound check the, and the place is empty, it looks small and you think, okay, we've got this, this is no problem. It's only when it gets full of people that, that these venues become massive. So, yeah, that was kind of um, awesome. crushing. Yes. <laughs> but did you, I mean, at that an stage... Like 78,000 people can honestly shrink you. <laughs> <laughs> but what was it like when you saw people like um is it mike hutchins you know the lead singer god i think but i mean obviously oh, he must have had a yeah, lot of is... swagger to deal with that kind of love the adoration of it oh what seeing him handle the crowd um yeah he could he could handle the crowd the, the guy was a bit weird the rest of the band were really nice people um i seem to remember this moment when david and when Mike, Michael Hutchins came into our dressing room with his personal bodyguard and said, guys, can I use your shower? Because ours is being used. And we were sitting there and we went, yeah, go on. And his, his bodyguard stood outside the shower, which we were kind of looking at each other, trying not to laugh. <laughs> <laughs> so what are we going to do, Mike? You know, um, yeah, he was a bit, he was a bit weird. It kind of head up his own ass sort of thing. But the rest of the band were lovely blokes, uh, you know. Um, yes, it must We be. went around Europe. We did a few gigs in Europe with them and uh, Scotland, I think. I can't remember. But, um, yeah, he's a bit weird. I saw a documentary on him recently. Um, mm. Yes, well, I remember. <laughs> it wasn't going to well, end. It wasn't going to end well, was it, really? Actually, it talk... ended how it ended. It did, actually. There was a good... Yeah. 
Yeah. I was going to say, I mean, this is a bit of relevant, but in a few weeks' time or weeks' time, there's a really good documentary on Sky Arts about Robert Lloyd from The Nightingales that's just kind of coming out, mm-hmm. narrated by or sort of interviewed with um, Stuart Lee, indeed, the famous Stuart Lee. So do check it out. It's called, okay. King, it's called King Rocker. It will, it will make you laugh. I've seen it. It's a, it's a classic film. Okay, okay, okay. I haven't got bloody Sky Arts. There was something I wanted to watch the other night and I got our drummer to record it for me. Oh, no. Um, so I can watch it when I go into his face. But, um, yeah. After uh, that. I don't know. There was, there was something on the other day. I said, uh, Jesus Jones are on this. I said, Jane, record this. But it was actually Mary Chain. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, so, was it the... and, and that was in print, and that was in whatever. Oh, right. Whatever. <laughs> yes. So was that 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 period when you you've had this success? There was the whole Britpop period, you know, world, and there was a huge amount of money, drugs, cocaine, champagne. Everything was going well. There was there was what was there the poet, wasn't there? Murray Lachlan Young. He was the sort of first million pound poet oh, on EMI. Him. I'm so, friends with him on Facebook as well. He's a yeah, love. Okay. He's a lovely, char- charming chap. I've I've sort of um, yeah interviewed him, talking about that world of fame, and he said it just was bizarre because suddenly you went from, you know, being a poet that no one cares about to this EMI million pound contract oh, really? poet yeah it's kind of interesting he said he's going to one day write a book about what happens when you have fame like that because it, mm. does, it doesn't end well either <laughs> i think yeah. you end yes it's fame, it. fame is a mask that eats your face though yes. john updike john updike quote oh. uh, i like that um Hey? Yes. So what happens then when you've had your two albums and you're, you're in the middle of the 90s, the John Major right. years, and you're sort of thinking, God, we've got to do this again. And I've just been around the world. I still don't know where we are, you know, just getting confused. Okay. I, I seem to remember uh, starting the verse. We, we, we had a tour with Duran Duran playing the Sheds in America, which is uh, outside venues, 10,000 people a night. And for some reason... Mike didn't want to do it and our manager we all wanted to do it and our manager was saying you've got to do this actually I'm wrong right that was perverse right so um, that was starting the fourth album which bombed okay perverse did alright perverse um, did alright was it like Stein perverse again it was the technology thing um, Mike was hell bent on doing an album with no guitars on it he just wanted to use samplers uh, he said Something like sampler is the new is the new rock and roll. So he had this thing that he just wanted to record the entire album using samples. You know, there's tracks like uh, "Devil You Know." Uh, th- there was a tiny bit of guitar somewhere, but um, otherwise no. Um, so that was again an, an experimental album which worked, but um, um. I don't know. I think that was the beginning of our our sort of fall from whatever height we were at. Was that album? Uh, even though it did really well, it went gold in the states, uh, gold over here, and all that. But, um, we had a massive tour out of it. But um, yeah, the, uh, the public are finicky. <laughs> and that was just when that was just when uh, Britpop was coming in and Oasis and Blur were coming in yes. and Oasis uh, Blur you know again great friends of ours I think they thought they'd peaked uh, a few years before because um, and then all of a sudden they find themselves going straight up you know rocketing into uh, immense fame along with Oasis and all that so um, 
Yes, they sort of they had the zeitgeist moment. But do you look back then when you sort of look at that that period and think about people like David Bowie who'd sort of he spent the sixties doing stuff which weren't that amazing. Then he does Ziggy Aladdin Sane, then he does bizarrely, mm. you know, things like Diamond Dogs and uh, Young Americans mm. Station to Station, a bit weird. And then he hits low. I mean, and you think everyone loves low now, but at the time People must have thought, what the hell is this? Side two. I mean, you know, when you look at your sort of output, do you sort of think, well, actually, it was a risk and obviously it did alienate people. But in the scheme of things, it's still it was still the right thing to do artistically. You have to take risks. You can't just keep writing the same uh, in the same method, in the same style. Writers do that naturally. Anyway, if you're a good writer, you're going to develop and get things different things that excite you and, and you, you're going to get married you're going to have a kid your kid's going to yeah i've got a three-year-old daughter i'm 60 years old every bloody song i write is about her you know um i can't help it <laughs> <laughs> so 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 yeah you, you can't help but develop into into someone else into something else you can't possibly possibly do two albums the same. I can't imagine Jesus Jones doing two albums the same. Every album has been very different from from its predecessor. Um, um, so, well, sorry, Dave. What was the question? Yeah, it was just about <clears throat> taking kind of artistic risks, and I'd sort of mentioned Bowie's. You, you kind have of, to. You have to. You have to. And Bowie just took hundreds of yes. risks. You know his image, everything. He was just one of the, just a comedian sort of uh, artist who, who that's what makes him tick. Um, but yeah, um, I mean because it's... we, we supported we supported him. Did you? <laughs> yeah, it's, this was before mobile phones, right? So it was about ninety. Uh, oh God, it was about eighty nine, and uh, I remember I'd been out. Uh, and I came in, and the band had obviously been trying to get in touch with me. And my brother phoned me up and goes, Jase, Jase, where you been? I said, I've been down the pub. He says, the band are you, you're supporting Bowie tomorrow night. I'm like, what? <laughs> yeah, it's just Tin Machine. Tin Machine. Yeah, so uh, we played at the Kilburn National. It's about 2,500 people. Um, that was great. He sat on my amp. I was yes. going to put a blue plaque on it. You should have done <laughs> It was interesting because I did an interview with the drummer Hunt recently. He was such a rock and roller because his father was a kind of a famous American kind of, I suppose, comedian, you know, TV person that he just kind of grew up, you know, if he wanted to see his dad, he'd put the telly on and see his dad. And then his, his brother is Tony, isn't he, the bass player? And then, you know, he works, okay. he works with um, he worked with. Iggy Pop on Lust for Life and The Idiot and right, right, right. loads of other people. But he's now a, he's produced. And then, yes, that's right. And then he kind of, you know, gets the call and he works on Tim Machine for about three or four years. Yeah. Which, yeah, um, that, was a, that was a strange gig, I wouldn't say. Uh, yeah, we didn't really enjoy it. Um, I, I just remember our keyboard player, Ian, hurling abuse. He was drunk and was effing and blinding every time in between the song. I'm surprised he didn't get beaten up. <laughs> but um, it was funny, it was like uh, you know, it's like we're told um, right, when Bowie uh, sound checks you got to leave the uh, the venue. And it's like well, no. And uh, I I seem to remember we our rider was uh, 12 tins of, of small, small half tins of skull. 
and they treated us really badly, gave us a really bad sound on stage and everything. And um, yeah, <laughs> not it's great, great prestige doing the gig, but not uh, way we treated. Yes, I expect. I had... think it was the. I think it was a case of Barry turns out his management said, right, which bands are big at the moment, and, and we were you know, really seriously up and coming. So we changed the chance I could get them and of course we jumped at it. And I think we got paid something like fifty pounds to do the bloody gig as well, you know what I mean? <laughs> Honestly, there was there was a fee for sport bands at the time. It's something like fifty, sixty quid a night. Um so I'm pretty sure that's the case. <laughs> yes. I do remember somebody I think it was Stuart who was the silverfish drummer who remember and he once told me that I don't know, it might have even be you, your band, but some in you know band supported him, and I think it was Tim Machine, and, and they said, don't touch David Bowie's strawberries, they're for him, but don't, you know, and they had to, and I think God. somebody just said, sorry, I'm stealing the strawberries. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was like, you know, there's no way we were going to leave the bloody building. It's, just, it's a terrible way to treat a band. You know, yeah, they, they, they're trying to make themselves look a bit cooler, by getting Jesus Jones to support them, and then then they say, you know, you're going to have to leave the building when you sound checks like bollocks. <laughs> so that didn't happen. No. But I remember, I remember the moment seeing Barry Walker down on stage. He's a short guy, or was a short guy. Yes. Very skinny, very slight. I know, about five foot sort of seven, I guess, wasn't he? He wasn't. Well, could you imagine seeing Prince? I mean, yeah, that must have that would freak your brain out. Yeah. He was only five foot yeah. one, I think. And we we uh, did a TV show with him as well. In, in the States, for something like the Arsenio Hall or the Arsenio Hall show, I think it was. And uh, we got, I think we got very drunk with uh, a couple of members of the band, literally, seriously emptying the uh, the mini fridges in the hotels, in, the, in our <laughs> hotel rooms. But, uh, I mean, Prince was nowhere to be seen. It's the, sa it's the same sort of thing with uh, In Excess, you know, um, band, really friendly, nice guys. And, uh, and you know, Michael Hutchins sort of standing using our shower with his uh, body. Yeah, there's that sort of thing. So, <laughs> so as we truck we on... Didn't see, we, sorry, sorry, Dave. No, no, sorry. I was going to say, as we were trucking through the... Because the, this, this is kind of the new Labour period, isn't it? You know, you've kind of gone from John Major to the Cool, cool, cool yeah, Britannia. Yeah. I mean, how did... Was yeah. any of that sort of picking up or were you just kind of feeling kind of exhausted? Because obviously you're, you've kind of gone beyond the five-year narrative to longevity here haven't you yeah we have um god i hate politics with a passion uh, i think i voted for the first time last year because uh alan made me our bass player um i pay no attention attention at all to it i think it's a pain in the ass and uh, they're all as bad as each other really i mean if there was a party that i thought was worth voting for i would but um i voted labor last year Pressure, <laughs> but I seriously dislike politics. So, uh, did it have any effect on us? No, no. Um, I think I'll speak for the rest of the band by saying that as well. But, but as as the sort of there was a, I mean, the party, at, as in the you know the, I mean, everything felt very optimistic, even though everyone started getting a bit moany in the nineties. But there was like a lot of kind of employment. There was a lot of money. Britain seemed really exciting. We'd had Britpop. Everything was going well. I just wondered how, as we were trucking towards the millennium, you know, how you were coping as the band, because you'd been going for over 10 years, which is quite a long marriage. Yeah, I think I've got, that could have been... Quite, there was one... There was a period where we didn't play for 
or, or hi. We we've always seen each other socially, but there was a period where we didn't actually play together for four years. Alan had moved to America, our bass player, and married over there. Um, I've got a feeling that was around then. And um, Christ, what was that? That was around. That would have been around ninety six, ninety seven. Because I turned forty in two thousand. <laughs> I'm just trying to figure this out. <laughs> um, yeah, th- 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 well, we got dropped by EMI when I was thirty six, so that would have been ninety seven. So yeah, um, we were kind of doing nothing for a bit, just thinking is we, we agreed never to split up ever um, because we always knew something would come of it. And I think you know, Christ, the, the next sort of thing we did was we got a phone call from. Uh, Miles from the one stuff saying, "Will you support us on some tour?" And it was like, "Yeah." Uh, or Mike, I get, God, it's really hard to remember, David. I think Mike um, had written a whole bunch of tracks around when we did the London album. Are you aware of that album? Vaguely. I think that was two thousand and one, though. Yes. Yeah, I think we'd have done some sporadic stuff like supporting the one stuff or going to Japan and doing some big festival in front of 40,000 people or something, a couple of those. Um, But we weren't doing much. Um, And it got to around 2001 when Mike just goes, there's there's an album there. And we all got together and did it again. Blimey. And started doing it. And we've been working sort of continuously ever since. But there was four years, and that would have been, I'm guessing, from our fourth album already which came out in 96 to around 2000, where we did very, very little because that album bombed. Um, We had to record it twice because it should have come out two years earlier, but EMI said to us, there's not enough guitars in it because we've we've gone totally techno. And he said, you know, we we need to sell in the States. We had to go back in, but right, Mike had to come up with a, a whole bunch of new songs of which we we changed two songs and re-recorded the album again with a different producer so that would have put a real halt on our career um so yeah it's just emi being suity and not really understanding what was going on and this was when prodigy so this is when prodigy was starting to kick in yes absolutely and that was uh and, um, and, and, and the chemical brothers as well probably. So there was quite a yeah, big yeah. techno scene going on there. Yeah, and EMI saying, they sat on the album, the fourth album, for three months before saying they're not going to record it. Um, and we were getting big advances then to make albums, so we had to go in and start all over again, like I say, which was really... We, we just went straight ahead and did it, but that there was a four-year gap between Perverse and the fourth album. Perverse was the third album. So um, that would have, and in that time, that Britpop, Britpop had come in. So, yeah, you know, things had changed very much. Yes. And then, I mean, so we hit the millennium, and you, you're you not on EMI. So then sort of bringing out, this is London, isn't it? Yeah, London, yeah. So we did that with some uh, guy in America who completely stitched us up. Uh, we didn't, we'd never seen a penny from that. I might have, yeah, I, Twenty, forty thousand albums were pressed up, and we literally never got a penny. Uh, now it's been released again over here on CDs as a box set, I think, or something. 
Ian, who manages now, manages us now, our keyboard players, uh, just put everything, put the band's finances and everything in order. We were just being, we weren't making any money. Everything's totally in order. We've got new deals now. We got royalty checks. <laughs> a lot of bands, you know, just will never see a royalty check because they owe so much to their record company. Yes. Um, we've managed to get all that sorted. I've chatted with uh, Miles and um, uh, Graham from Popular Yourself, Miles from The One Stuff. They're in so much debt, they will never see a royalty check in their career. Well, it's interesting because um, there was um, a band, remember Age of Chance? Age of Chance. They yeah, were from, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they yeah, said no. that they got the big kind of royalty check to do the album. I think this is it. And then a big advance. And then, and you know, and you think, wow, I've got all this money. But then suddenly, you know, and the same with um, Carter, the unstoppable sex machine. When I yeah, did the yeah, interview yeah. with him, yeah. I mean, the same thing was kind of again, you know, you get all this money, you're selling millions, but somehow you've got this phenomenal debt. And it's like you'll never own the songs because no, you're, you know, exactly what happens every time. You know, we used to get statements in saying, you know, two hundred thousand pounds to EMI, and we get that down to thirty-six grand or something. Something that means, you know, and for, for, you do not get a royalty check while you owe your record company money. Uh, and you know, we get down to something like thirty grand, and then they'd release a, a compilation and charge us for the artwork and the pressing and this, and it go right back up again. But um, yeah, we've got down. We uh, we. Uh, we get royalty checks. <laughs> God, that's and impressive. That's, been going, that's probably been going on for the last five, six years. But it's quite... And they're great when they come through, Christ. Um, but I, I remember the first, first time we actually got a royalty check, it was like, bloody hell, you know. You never thought this would happen. No, because there was a one guy, I think he's in the Fuzz Tones, he just said, because he'd been yeah, in yeah. music all his life, he just said, the way he does it is just like, get the money give the person in the company the album and just expect never to see another penny. It was almost like he emotionally coped with it that way. It was like, give us the money to do the album. I'll give you the mm. album. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that I'll never see any more of that money yeah. at all. I'll just have to work on, you know, I'll have to hustle the next record deal and do it like that, which was like, okay, I suppose that's a bit more realistic. I suppose he's kind of being realistic about what the scene and the industry is well, all know, about. Well, you know, it depends what sort of record company you're with. I mean, EMI are, are not stupid. They stitched us up. Uh, it cost us something like £100,000 to get out of the deal we were in. Um, yeah, going to court and all this and uh, getting the big boys... Um, percentage uh, points they're called um, but yeah, there's just crappy uh, clauses in the contract like in the event of TV advertising your royalties uh, your um, the percentage you get will be halved so if we let's say we were on something like 12% of every album that we get the money from the sale of that goes immediately down to 6% because they chose to put out an advert for out or something like that it's just crappy little things like that so where we could have you know m made some money from doubt we didn't yes uh, so our manager we had we got a really top manager at the time uh who re she retired uh recently Gail colson but she was uh i think the man chairperson of the managers guild she's a big kick-ass manager and um I remember saying, having the guy Andy Ross and Balfi, why did you let them sign this crap contract? <laughs> it was like, well, it, it, you know, it wasn't up to them. You know, we, we got a lawyer in 
to read through it with us, but he just wasn't um, as particular as he should have been. But um, yeah, so Sod's Law is as soon as we get a big, I think we're on half a percent less than McCartney. You know, we're assigned to EMI, we're a priority, and that's when our albums start dropping in sales. <laughs> Great. Yes. God, that's weird. Yeah. So, so what? What? And not particularly this year or even last year. But what? What then? Sort of happens in the team 2010 period. Were you just touring and sort of putting out the odd single? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, 2010. Uh, wait, no, 20, 20, 20. Uh, yeah, Ian. When as soon as Ian started managing us, our keyboard player, um, who's very really smart, shrewd guy. Um, yeah, he started, like I say, he started putting things in order, getting his deals, and but yeah, I think I think around then we were just just making videos of our own. Um, my memory is terrible, David. <laughs> when it comes to this, um, Ian is is spot on when it comes when it comes to dates and things we did. But um, yeah, it would have just been sort of the years when we weren't really doing much. Um, you know, sort of doing festivals. Uh, trips to Japan, um, yeah, but not really being very productive. Yeah. Does that mean then that you're, as a band, you know, it's kind of something, not a side project, but do you have to do other things as well in life, apart from being in Jesus? Yeah, we do now, we do now. Um, I'm a, I work in TV and film, so I'm a scenic artist, I do scenery, I paint scenery. Um, Mike, Mike's being a home husband at the moment, but he was a personal trainer. Ian was on uh, XFM as a DJ. Alan sells wine. Jen does whatever he does, uh, building. But yeah, so now we have a, a sideline job. And our income is sort of half Jones, half whatever else we do. So, um, so is it I the like, I, like, I like my other job. My other job's great. Yes. I think, um, you know, when I mentioned, is it Mike, who was in um, Voice of the Beehive? Yeah. Yeah, Mike, the, he was the guy with dreadlocks bass. Uh, not, not bass player, he must have been the guitarist. I think he might have been, yeah. I don't know, he, I don't think he had dreadlocks. But he was, he's in a band called I Ludicrous now as well. But no, he, that's, uh, that's, that's uh, Martin again. Martin. That's Martin. Martin. <laughs> I, I Ludicrous, yeah. Yes. But he's... Um, he does beards. He does beards on films. That's his kind of day, you know, one of his... Did he really? Yeah, he, I, I remember him telling me um, many years ago that he was doing music for adverts and things, and he was saying he makes far more money than he does to, to do, to, um, you know, a 45-second piece of music for an advert than, than he ever did in uh, in music. So, um, yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of, I, I've just done them, I've, me and... My songwriting partner, Leif, and then we've just done. Um, uh, he's the guy that did Info Freako and a lot of work on uh, Liquidizer with us. We've just done a vampire film, <laughs> done the music for that. It's absolutely brilliant. I love doing it. Um, stuff like that. Um, it was really interesting to sit down with in front of a laptop, you know, with the uh, scenes in front of you and putting the music together. Fantastic. Yes. That's yeah, right. And I actually had a cameo role in the film. <laughs> it's got to be done, hasn't it? Yeah, it's interesting because there's, yeah. there's quite a few musicians who have gone into sort of doing soundtracks because occasionally I try and get them for in interviews and they say, well, I, I can't tell you what I'm going to do because one day, you know, I'll just get a phone call and just have to go on 
just got to go on set and start doing things. It's like, okay, I'll just try and fit in with you. So um, it's interesting. Yeah. So we, yeah, so, it's, it's great. It's great doing things like that. Just pushing yourself musically, but in a different direction. Yeah. Really so basically, Jesus Jones is going to keep keep going right into decades, as long as everyone's still able to. And one day when we can, yeah. kind of come out again from hibernation. Yeah. Um. Um. We were before COVID. We were just about to. We had an American tour set up, Canada. We were playing Canada with EMF and Jim Bob from Carter. Um, we had the usual festivals, and we were about to do a 30-year anniversary tour of Doubt. So there you go. Yes. It's been, it was 30 years last year since it came out. So, yeah, we will. there'll, there'll be uh, another album coming soon, probably a year from now, hopefully. But, uh, yeah. Mike, Mike hasn't stopped writing Blimey. at all. So if you could say something to an 18-year-old self starting out with all the wisdom and experience you've had, what what would you sort of advise them? Oh, God, man, give up. I mean, you just don't make money out of music now. And, and yeah, I, I wouldn't say give up. I'd just say you've got to be seriously uh, motivated because uh, there's no money in the uh, industry anymore. Um, people... People who want to do it, do it. It's that simple. You can't, you can't not do it if that's your, you know, your passion. I mean, I can, I, the room I'm sitting in now is just full of guitars. It's got all my gold and platinum discs in it. I can't walk this past this room in the house without coming in, much to my partner's uh, annoyance. <laughs> like I say, we've got a three-year-old kid. Will you stop playing that bloody? Guitar? I, you know, I'm. I just can't stop playing, and I'm 60. Yes. So I mean, it's, it's been like that all my life. Um, it's in your blood. If you're going to do it, you're going to do it. Um, it, it, it. There's nothing better than getting up on stage and doing a doing doing a live gig. And I have you miss it? And have you managed, or are you sort of one day thinking of archiving the band? You know, in some, <clears throat> you know, like book, DVD, you know, just a film of the band. Sorry, Dave, say that again. Are you one, have you got plans or would the band have plans of wanting to archive what you've done, whether it's a book, whether it's a film, anything? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Mike's just put a book out last year. It's called uh, Death Threats from a seven-year-old or eight-year-old or something. Um, but, yeah, Mike's just put a book out. Um, it's been published. Um, Ian is constantly um, conjuring up stuff that's going to happen um, yeah, we you know we put a box set out of all the albums with interviews on recent interviews, uh, new brand new interviews. Yeah, yeah, constant. We will do that all the time. Yes, there will, there will always. There's a whole bunch of stuff about to come out on vinyl that hasn't come out on vinyl uh, any minute. So there's yeah, in answer to your question, there's stuff happening all the time. Um, it, it hasn't gone into yeah, Ian hasn't put a press release out yet, but um, it's about to happen. I mean, the last thing I got from Ian was an email saying, we've made no money this year, but we're getting an advance for doing all this and this and this, all the stuff that's coming out. So, um, yeah, there's loads happening, and there, there always will be. Um, yeah, we can't wait to do the next gig, the next project, the next album, whatever. So, yes. And when cool. and when you do those tours, like with EMF, is EMF and um, 
uh, with with you know Carter, Jim Bob. And yeah. do you, do you have yeah. those kind of moments where you have chats going, my God, I can't believe we've managed to survive this far. Yeah, yeah. Uh, things. Yeah, I've seen EMF a lot lately. James Singer. Uh, I've had some good chats with Jim. Um, I think it's when you haven't seen each other for something like 20 years that happens. You know, it's like, wow, how you been? God, you've gone grey. Where's your hair gone? You know, blah, blah, blah. But if you see each other constantly, um, you kind of, you know, you're up on it. But um, you're up on what's happening with each other. Uh, you know, how's your kid, Jerry? Blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, how's your kids? How, how's this going? Yeah, James, the singer from EMF, is now a music teacher in a secondary school. Go, go figure. Uh, so, yeah, it's things like that, just sort of career changes and, you know, really strange sort of developments in people's life that that would, you know, make you sort of think, Christ, are we still going? But um, I don't know. I don't know. Again, we just take things pretty matter-of-factly day by day. Yes. I've never been one. I've never been one to think, God, I can't believe we're still doing this. It's just we just get on and do it. You know, we rehearse and go out, gig. And sit down it. and write loads of songs and record them. <laughs> Pretty <laughs> straightforward. You, you can probably hear I'm just getting to the end of this massive glass of wine that I poured when I started talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, I would sure. imagine, because I think this year's not going to happen really, is it? I think everyone's really... No, I don't think so either. I think everyone's just desperate that next year's going to be properly organised and on the road in some yeah, we've, fashion. we've got gigs coming in. We've got something in Belgium happening and, you know, I've got Ian phoning us up saying, guys, can you do this gig for next November? And it's like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what are we going to be doing in November? Um, hopefully these vaccines will uh, start sorting things out. Yes, I think, yes. We'll I think again. hopefully Christmas might be, but 2022, you know, but... I think when you know Glastonbury got pulled, it was like, yeah, that's... it did, didn't it? And McCartney was just going to headline. Yeah, he won't do it now. He won't be able to. He won't no, be able to next year. He won't be able to do Jet Band on the Road. No, he won't. No, he won't. Classic, classic. <laughs> <Walter Skelter. laughs> right. Well, look. Thank you ever so much for this. This has been amazing. And um... it's been a total pleasure talking to you, David. Yes. Uh, well, look. Take I, care. I, and I've really... I came up here with a massive glass of wine, and I'm just about done now. Oh, good. Good. Okay. You can have another. But anyway, look. Have a great evening. And um, yes, I'll keep in touch. I'll send you the link if you want, and that will be cool. Yeah, that'd be fine. I'd like to hear that. Um, listen, uh, and come and see us. I will. I will. Okay. Come take care there. We'll put you on the guest list and all that, and uh, be nice to. I saw a picture of you today when I was um, researching who I was going to be talking to. But, oh. um, yeah, yeah, you've got to come and see us. <laughs> I will. I definitely will. Okay, take care there, and um, take, all the best. And you, Dave. Bye bye. Yeah. Cheers, mate. Bye bye. Take it easy. Bye. And that is the end of the interview. Thank you to Jerry DeBorg. From Jesus Jones, forgive me the time of that interview. A huge thank you. And um, yes, nice chat. Anyway, look, if you want to, um, for some exciting reason, want to get in touch with me, with me, you can on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram or all of them, basically. Just do CAT6 show and uh, I'll be there. You know, keep it positive. Otherwise, don't bother. Also, I've been doing these uh, interviews for years, years and years. There's hundreds of them. So if there's anything you want to find out about obscure 
uh, indie bands, mostly from the 80s, but there is other uh, kind of decades and even sort of genres of music. Um, just do Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, their um, C86 show. There's literally hundreds. Anyway, look, have a great week. Stay safe.